Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQBD in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, the showman who became Ukraine's president. Time magazine senior correspondent Simon Schuster says that Ukraine's Volodymyr Zelensky's former life as a comedian made him both acutely aware of the power of propaganda and effective at winning support for Ukraine from abroad after Russia invaded nearly two years ago. We'll talk to Schuster about Zelensky's transformation from stage actor to wartime leader, based on dozens of interviews with Zelensky, his family, and his inner circle. Schuster's new book is The Showman, Inside the Invasion That Shook the World and Made a Leader of Volodymyr Zelensky. He joins us after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. When Russia invaded Ukraine nearly two years ago on February 24th, 2022, it attacked a nation led by a man who, as Time magazine's Simon Schuster writes, never served in the military or shown much interest in its affairs. Volodymyr Zelensky's professional instincts derive from a lifetime as an actor on the stage, a specialist in improv comedy, and a producer in the TV and movie business. His experience as a statesman, writes Schuster, added up to about two years and nine months, less than the time it takes to earn a bachelor's degree in international affairs. For just about anyone in his position, the urge to flee would seem as natural as the urge to live. That excerpt is from Simon Schuster's new biography called The Showman, Inside the Invasion That Shook the World and Made a Leader of Volodymyr Zelensky. And he joins me now. Simon, welcome to Forum. Thank you so much. Really an honor to be with you. Well, we're really glad to have you. The urge to flee, you write. In those first hours of the Russian invasion, there was a genuine expectation from military and intelligence officials that Zelensky may not stick around. Tell us about that. Yeah, that was that was the big factor that no one could really calculate. Uh, as one of Zelensky's close advisors put it to me, one of the ones involved in gaming out what would happen if Russia were to attack, that's the one thing you never really can calculate. Uh, how will the leader respond? Will his nerves snap? Uh, will the fear of death scramble his ability to lead? And everyone was worried about that. Uh, Certainly, Ukraine's Western allies were expecting as their baseline scenario that he would need to run in order to maintain uh, the the existence of the state. He would need to form a government in exile because the the attack seemed so likely to sweep across Ukraine in a matter of days. And they were offering support for that to help him build that government in exile. And can you remind us just how vulnerable he was? You talk about where the presidential compound is. Yeah, the presidential compound itself is right in the center of the government district in Kyiv. It is a densely packed neighborhood. Um, There are apartments around. You can rent an Airbnb right nearby, close enough to 
I mean, if, if you were a Russian saboteur to lob a grenade through the window, to be honest, it's not like the White House, which has kind of a, a large lawn and a security perimeter. Um, so that place is very vulnerable um, to attack. Uh, and Kiev was, again, according to uh, Zelensky's security advisors with whom I spoke, um, was unprotected. One of them said there was not a single, uh, in half the city, there was not a single concrete block to form a, a barricade to impede the advance of enemy tanks. So it was very um, weakly protected. And, and it's not like many were not fleeing. You talk about how many from Ukraine's main intelligence agency fled. Yeah, so that that was a big problem on on the uh, in the opening hours of the invasion. Um, uh, surprisingly, the the high command, the the top uh, leadership, stayed for the most part. Um, but lower in the ranks, in the security services, people ran away. Um, in in one region in the south, uh, a very large one, it, uh, the reports we have and the investigations that have been conducted suggest that essentially some of the leadership down there, the regional leaders, the security officials, kind of handed the keys to those regions right over to the invaders as they came in. So how did Zelensky respond? How did this person with experience of two and a half years as a statesman, what did he do? Well... Hours? Yeah, for for the book, we, we talked about that moment and, and what was going through his head. Um, I mean, w- one thing that, that jumps out at me is is that, you know, he knew that uh, the shame of fleeing would follow him for the rest of his life. And it seems like in his mind, as, as someone who really, you know, it's important to him to be loved by his audience, to be loved by the people, um, uh, he found the possibility of that shame to be more scary than the fear of death. Um, but, you know, also I think, you know, one, one thing he told me is that that morning he gave himself a, a bit of a pep talk. Um, uh, what he said was, they're watching, meaning the world is watching, your people are watching. You are a symbol, he told himself. You need to act the way head of state must act. So he began Im- imagining based on, you know, I don't know, movies he had seen, books he had read, uh, historical figures he was aware of that had led their countries through war. You know, Winston Churchill comes to mind, others. And he began essentially stepping into the role of a wartime leader as he imagined that leader must act. As he imagined that leader must act. And even though he did not have wartime governing experience, I don't know that a ton of world leaders uh, end up having that, especially under his circumstances, for example. He was able to capitalize on his abilities, the abilities that he developed as an entertainer to persuade the world to come to Ukraine's aid. Can you talk about how he embodied that, how he tried to use that to his strengths and to the nation's strengths? Yeah, this this came more in, 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 the, in the first week or so of, of the invasion when they got their bearings a little bit and understood the importance of... Uh, securing an influx, a massive and very rapid influx of Western aid in the form of weaponry. Um, and he needed to convince uh, the leaders of foreign countries, but also the, the people in those countries, the people who elected those leaders in foreign democracies to support Ukraine and to pressure their own governments in those uh, European countries in the US, Canada, Australia, Japan, and so on, to uh, pressure uh, their own leadership to stay behind Ukraine and provide the aid that Ukraine needed. And I think Zelensky, as I argue in the book, and, and I, I, I describe in great detail based on conversations with him and his allies, they constructed a kind of communication strategy that spoke not only to his counterparts in, in foreign capitals, but also to the, the people to make sure that we all 
felt and experienced this war as something close to us, as something that, that was defending our own values, values of democracy, sovereignty, independence, um, and, and really uh, kept us on his side, kept us rooting for him for weeks, months, as long as possible. We're talking about Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky and his rise from TV entertainer and movie producer to wartime leader with Simon Schuster, who's a senior correspondent for Time. His new book is The Showman Inside the Invasion That Shook the World and Made a Leader of Volodymyr Zelensky. And listeners, if you have questions for Simon about Zelensky and his metamorphosis, Please share them at 866-733-6786. Post them on our social channels at KQED Forum. Email forum at kqed.org. I also want to know, has Zelensky shaped how you think about or perceive the war on Ukraine? What do you remember about how Zelensky handled those early days of the invasion? Why did he let you write this book? Talk a little bit about how you were able to get this gig, because it sounds like there were not a lot or any preconditions. Uh, no, that's right. He he didn't set any preconditions. He didn't ask to read the book uh, beforehand. As far as I know from, from his aides, who I communicate with frequently, uh, he hasn't read it yet. He's, <laughs> he's working on it, but he's, he's a busy guy, so he doesn't have a lot of time for reading. Um, so it was not uh, unusual for me, given my um, e expertise. I specialize in Ukraine as a journalist. I've, I've been reporting in Kiev on and off since 2009. So what's that? About 15 years. Um, president Zelensky is not the first, but the third Ukrainian president I've uh, interviewed, profiled, spent time with. Um, and indeed, when President Zelensky was running for office in 2019, in the spring, um, I profiled him as, as part of his campaign. At the time, it was uh, kind of this strange story that my editors were like, yeah, okay, a comedian running for office? Okay, go check it out. You know, you're the Ukraine guy. Why not, why not? go talk to him? He might just win. Um, and sure enough, he did. And then when he, when he did win, uh, so I spent time with him on the campaign trail, got to know him um, kind of behind the scenes of his comedy shows, which often doubled as his campaign rallies. Uh, when he won, I stayed in touch with the people I had met while reporting on the campaign trail with him. I stayed in touch with the president's staff. Many of his friends and colleagues from the world of entertainment and comedy actually went with him into the halls of power, or took seats in parliament, took seats and took, took positions, senior positions in the administration. So I had those contacts, and over the course of the, the first three years of his administration, I stayed in close touch with them. I continued reporting on, on his leadership, on his run-ins with then-President Donald Trump, on his preparations for uh, negotiations with Vladimir Putin to try to forestall the kind of invasion that we, we later saw play out. Uh, and then when that invasion did begin, I was in a pretty unique position to approach him and his team and say, you know, look, uh, we need to chronicle the events happening around you here. Um, you know me. You, you know my work. Um, what do you think about me writing a book about this? And he said, yeah, I guess somebody should. But I was also struck by the fact that he asked you how long it would take to come out, and you said about a year. And he was shocked that you were thinking the war would last a year. Yeah, his his face really fell when, when I said that to him. This was um, in the second month of the invasion. Um, and he said, what, you think the war will not be over in a year? And that really um, was was painful to see. I think it you know, shows his, his confidence and, and his uh, sense that there was still a very good chance, you know, even then, as Kiev was still under pretty immediate threat of encirclement, 
uh, and and so much of Ukrainian territory was occupied by the Russians, uh, there was still a chance of ending the war through negotiations. Um, yeah, so he he had a, a different picture of how the war would play out. Now we're almost two years in, and and it's it's still raging. It also reveals his naivete, his sort of lack of. Well, it, yeah, you, you could call it different things. Um, yeah, I guess as as uh, history has played out, it was naive for him to think that he could bring the war to a, a swift conclusion through some kind of negotiations and negotiated settlement that would not seem like capitulation. Uh, the the Russian negotiators were not ready to you know uh, um, give Ukraine that possibility. Um, they they wanted basically you know peace only on Russia's terms. Um, so yes, maybe that was naive, but but it also at, at the time seemed like uh, pretty typical of his very high confidence in himself. For someone who is a professional actor or a professional performer and has shown himself to be an effective showman, as is the title of your book, I think it's natural to question what is genuine about Zelensky, what is performative, what is fake. Does he genuinely and truly believe in Ukraine's ultimate victory? Absolutely. Yeah. In public and private and and all his conversations. I mean, he sees it as essential to his role to inspire that kind of confidence in in others. Sure. He's not saying that to keep a country together. He personally, deeply, genuinely believes in Ukraine's ultimate total victory. From everything I have seen and gotten to know of him. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely does. We're learning about President Volodymyr Zelensky from the access that Simon Schuster was able to get of him, his inner circle, his family members. We're talking about the early days of the war, asking you, our listeners, what you remember about it. We'll talk more about Zelensky's metamorphosis after the break. Stay with us. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Simon Schuster, a senior correspondent for Time magazine who has reported from Russia and Ukraine for the last 15, 17 years. Half his family is Russian and half Ukrainian, and he grew up speaking Russian as Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky had. Zelensky agreed to sit for interviews and gave Schuster access to his friends and enemies, his family, his ministers and military commanders. Schuster's new book is based on all those conversations. It's called The Showman, Inside the Invasion That Shook the World and Made a Leader of Volodymyr Zelensky. And you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation. What questions do you have about the war in Ukraine, about the U.S.'s role or support for it? 
Has Zelensky shaped how you think about or perceive the war? Are you concerned about the direction that it is now taking? You can share all your thoughts, comments, questions by emailing forum at kqed.org, by posting on our social channels at KQED Forum on X, Instagram, our digital community on Discord. You can call us at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. I want to step back a little bit and ask you about where that strength of conviction for Ukraine's victory, the resolve to stay in the face of offers to be able to form a government in exile because he was so vulnerable where it came from, one of the areas that you do focus on is the impact that the illegal annexation of Crimea by Putin had on him. Can you share a little bit about about his connection to Crimea? Yeah, I'd say before the annexation of Crimea, before Russia first invaded and sent its troops into Ukraine to annex that territory and then attempt to to seize further territory in the east. All of that happened in 2014. Before that, Zelensky, uh, as an entertainer, a comedian, tended to stay on the sidelines of politics. He was a political satirist, so he would make fun of all the politicians, no matter what what their policies were. But he didn't really take a strong position uh, on whether this big question of whether Russia, excuse me, whether Ukraine should integrate with Russia or whether it should integrate with the West, that really began to change after the Russians seized Crimea. To to Zelensky, like to millions of Ukrainians, that was a stab in the back. It hurt so much. For Zelensky, Crimea was as much a part of Ukraine and is as as the capital, Kiev. Uh, He had performed there throughout his life. His family had a summer home there where where they would vacation. So that was the moment when when that that military action was taken by Vladimir Putin, when, as I write in the book, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky's position shifted from political satire into political activism, and he really began to speak out against what the Russians were doing. What do you mean by that? I understand Zelensky appeared on television in a way his fans had never seen. What happened? Yeah, in the middle of the the annexation, as the Russian troops were seizing that territory and and preparing to annex it, he appeared uh, on a Ukrainian news broadcast uh, in a way that Ukrainians had never seen him before. He gave this kind of three-minute speech. He said, no jokes this time. And then he began to lay out his position on, you know, what the different parties to this conflict need to do. Uh, And he appealed directly to Vladimir Putin. He said, do not put my country on its knees. Um, And that was a a very forceful statement. I think a lot of people were confused by it in the moment because he was seen still as a comedian, not a political actor. But with hindsight, to me, that looked like the moment when he really, um, you know, began to play the role of of a, a, he had political agency, so to say. Well, this listener writes, I'm curious if Schuster thinks Zelensky's family history as Jews in Eastern Europe had any bearing on his conduct as president in response to Russia's invasion. Yeah, very deep and interesting question. Thank you. Yeah, I, I, I talk quite a bit about his, his Jewish heritage, the yeah. way his family um, uh, you know, survived the Holocaust and how, how many of their own they lost during, during World War II uh, to the Holocaust. Um, so his, his Jewish identity is de- definitely formative. I think in the context of this invasion, um, I think it, it uh, puts the lie to a lot of Putin's propaganda about why he's invading Ukraine. You know, he, he has used this ridiculous rhetoric of denazifying. You know, he's, he's accused the Ukrainian leadership of being somehow Nazis. Um, and the fact that Ukraine has a Jewish president, you know, makes that rhetoric and propaganda seem pretty ridiculous on its face. 
Um, so that that is definitely one factor that you know Zelensky has pointed to. Like how how can you accuse us of being Nazis if my family sacrificed so much during the Holocaust? Uh, you know, we we are we are part of the Jewish community in in Ukraine, and and I and and he is president. So so how can how can a, a uh, some kind of you know uh, a country like the one Russia paints in its propaganda elect a Jewish president that doesn't make sense. Yeah, and it sounded like he also had to sort of excavate his own oppression by Russia. Can you talk about that too? Yes, uh, I mean that that kind of uh, oppression was not so um, clearly discussed in his household. Um, he began to discover elements of, uh, you know, atrocities that the Soviets had, had committed under Joseph Stalin in the 1930s against Ukraine um, and, you know, other means of oppression and uh, uh, repression. Um, he, he began to discover these things later in life. Once, once he was in politics and certainly once the invasion began, what I, what I chronicle is a kind of evolution in which President Zelensky tried to rip all the Russian out of himself. He began transitioning very actively to the use of the Ukrainian language as opposed to the Russian one, which Russian is his native tongue. But he, even in our conversations, would slip into Ukrainian. Um, it's just one example. You know, another example is the movies that he grew up watching. He loved these Soviet comedies uh, that I also grew up watching, um, uh, you know, as, as a kid. And then once the invasion was underway, he couldn't see them anymore. He couldn't stomach them because the nostalgia that they used to evoke now evoked a kind of... Uh, Discussed with, with uh, as he put it, everything linked to the past, meaning the Soviet past. In 2014, Zelensky also starts going with his troop to the front lines to see the war up close. And you write that that changed him too. How? Very deeply, yeah. Um, that, that was that was one of the most interesting things I uncovered in kind of going deep into his, his personal history. Um, so, yeah, once the Russian troops moved in and tried to, you know, seize Crimea and, and began trying to seize further territory in eastern Ukraine, the Ukrainian military fought back. And Zelensky, as a comedian with his comedy troupe, uh, began going to the front line of that conflict to entertain the Ukrainian troops, sort of like Bob Hope did during World War II and the USO tours. Um, you know, and they would take trucks full of speakers and backup dancers and costumes and put on these big shows uh, along the front lines. And his conversations with the soldiers uh, that he entertained during those tours were really formative in shaping his ideas about politics, um, his frustration with the leadership in Ukraine, and his idea that he could maybe do a better job uh, if he were to go into politics. The soldiers, many of them encouraged him to do that, to give it a shot. Let me go to some calls. Stephen in San Francisco is on the line. Stephen, you're on. Thank you. Ukraine is an exact mock of uh, England before World War II were attacked. And Europe was being taken over by the Nazis. Russia under Putin is trying exactly the same thing. Our support of the Ukraine is exactly the same as Russia support of England. The problem we had in, in Congress is exactly the same. Biden's is exactly the same as Roosevelt had. Well, Stephen, I, I think I understand what you're saying. I'm sorry your connection has been breaking up a little bit, but you're talking about U.S. support for Ukraine and drawing parallels with Roosevelt's support of England. And actually, I do want to ask you, Simon, about it seems like Zelensky's government right now has recently been talking more about the U.S.'s response during the annexation of Crimea. 
how former U.S. President Barack Obama, I think one of the officials, uh, an advisor to President Zelensky, has been saying should start admitting critical mistakes in his administration's Russia policy. And I am curious, given the fact that we know that U.S. aid is faltering uh, for Ukraine, is that a strategic way to remind the U.S. that in the Ukrainian, from the Ukrainian perspective, U.S. really abandoned the country during that annexation as, and is trying to make the case that on top of, you know, the importance of securing Western democracy, you, you kind of owe us almost. I, I don't see it that way. No, I, I don't think it's it's calculated in the sense of telling the Americans mm. you owe us. But it is a reminder that look where appeasement got you in 2014. To the Ukrainians and to, and to President Zelensky, uh, the Western response and the American response to that first invasion in 2014 that we've been talking about was a kind of appeasement. The sanctions were weak. They did not teach Putin that... Uh, that um, he won't get away with this. On the contrary, I, I think to many Ukrainians, it looks like the, the Western response broadly showed him that he could get away with this kind of land grab. Um, I think that's very deeply felt. Um, and, and you know, the, the Ukrainians have been trying to remind us, and President Zelensky first and foremost, that uh, do not make that mistake again. You have to be forceful in your response to Russian aggression, because if you don't stop him here, he will continue. We're talking with Simon Schuster about his new book, The Showman, Inside the Invasion That Shook the World and Made a Leader of Volodymyr Zelensky. Simon Schuster will also be speaking at the Commonwealth Club of California in San Francisco this evening at 530 for those who are local or there's also streaming available for that event as well. You, our listeners, can also talk to Simon now at 866-733-6786 on our social channels at KQED Forum or by emailing your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org. So the U.S. Defense Department says that it has run out of money for Ukraine, having sent its last round of security assistance at the end of December. Of course, it's trying to do that with this border security deal that's being called dead on arrival by members of the House, GOP members of the House. Uh, I believe the House Speaker Mike Johnson said that that proposed package was also probably dead on arrival as well. President Biden's top aides bluntly told lawmakers in a private meeting last week that if Congress fails to authorize additional military aid for Ukraine in the coming days, Russia could win the war in a matter of weeks or months. And so I'm so curious how Zelensky is responding to this, what he thinks of what's going on right now in the U.S. Thank you. Yeah, I I had that conversation with him um after one of his recent trips to Washington, this was a few months ago, the visit was in uh, late September when he met with Biden and congressional leaders on Capitol Hill. Um, and then I, I followed him back to Ukraine and, and we met a couple couple weeks later to talk about his impressions. He described to me a meeting, he had a difficult meeting with uh, senators uh, on Capitol Hill where they asked him, okay, look, what will happen if we don't give you the aid? And he said, we will lose the war. He put it that bluntly. Uh, and that's, you know, coming from him. That's a stark statement. Um, yeah. and, and that really explains the stakes we're dealing with here in, in this this uh, partisan debate in, in Washington. Um, that's how he thinks about it. Uh, he has not thrown up his hands and, you know, uh, left 
his country's fate up to you know the, the partisan bickering in Washington, the Ukrainians have taken a number of steps uh, to prepare for the possibility that Western aid, including American aid, will continue to decline. Uh, I have a story out, a, a long read um, in time uh, today, actually, that, that describes one of those things. One of them is the um, uh, production of domestic weapons. So increasing Ukraine's ability to produce its own weapons, including uh, NATO standard, American standard weapons inside the country. So the messaging that, that uh, Zelensky has been, has been sending uh, to his partners in the West is like, okay, if you are running out of money to help us, at least give us the blueprints to build these weapons ourselves. Give us the licenses, help us do it, and we will build. So that is part of the strategy going forward. We're going to see that play out in the coming months. It's a very difficult challenge. It's not easy with the stroke of a pen for President Biden to grant those kinds of blueprints. Um, but that is uh, increasingly what the Ukrainians are pushing for in this environment, political environment. Is he getting any kind of favorable, favorable response from the Biden administration to that proposal? It's an ongoing debate. Um, I think it hasn't it hasn't been resolved. Um, uh, President Biden seems open to it, from what I hear from the Ukrainians. Uh, but I, I will say that the Ukrainians have had an enormous amount of success, I think, in in developing their own weapon systems, especially attack drones. Uh, some of your listeners may have seen these images coming out of Russia just in recent days and weeks of oil terminals and other infrastructure blowing up in the middle of the night in Russia, sending these huge fireballs into the sky. These uh, attacks are being done by Ukrainian weapons, weapons made in Ukraine. Uh, that is pretty incredible, considering where their their military started. You know, these these weapons systems have been developed during the course of the invasion. So they are moving forward. They're developing their own missiles. They're they're beginning to build their own artillery shells, which have been you know very important in this in this war. Um, so they're they're proceeding, but they really need uh, American help, both in financial aid, military aid, but also in these licenses and blueprints. So they're looking at domestic weapons. At the same time, are they talking about recalibrating their message, the strength that we described that Zelensky possessed that saw him mm. through this first mm -hmm. year of the war? Is that also something that they're thinking about as being just as critical? Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's that's the dimension of the war. You could call it the information war, where Zelensky has I would say, uh, been most effective and most active. They talk all the time about shifting their message. They, they put an extraordinary amount of effort um, and skill into crafting the narrative, shaping the narrative, uh, you know, keeping the world on their side. They have been a bit stuck in the rut, uh, according to his aides, about the message. The, the message has, um, they feel, uh, it's, it's failing to connect. Uh, as Zelensky put it in, in our most recent conversation, uh, many in, in the West are acting like when they see the war in Ukraine, they're acting like they're watching a rerun for the 10th time and they're beginning to change the channel. Mm. So he and his aides in, in their private conversations and meetings are, are constantly looking for ways to change that dynamic, to, to give the world a reason to believe in Ukraine's victory, to inspire confidence in Ukraine's victory again. It's, it's difficult when, when the war is, is grinding on. Um, and there appears to be a stalemate along the front lines, but they are they're constantly looking for these kinds of you know w ways to grab our attention again. Have they settled on something or are they trying things out right now? Yes, um, I think uh, it, it's subtle, but if you listen carefully to the messaging um, that uh, President Zelensky delivered in Davos at, at, the, at, the, at the forum there, the World Economic Forum, um, 
the language was a little bit different. Uh, you know, I pick up on it because I listen to his speeches as kind of <laughs> professional. That's what I do. <laughs> um, so the language is shifting more toward talk of the need for peace rather than the need for victory. The, the balance is shifting in subtle ways that I think is interesting. But I, I think most listeners wouldn't quite pick up on it. But but to me, it signals that between the lines, they, they are shifting to a, a somewhat different message. His ability to communicate is, is his strength. What had have you observed or think might be one of his biggest faults? Um, yeah, I, I... You've talked about his recklessness, potentially, and <laughs> bravery. <laughs> You've yeah, talked about yeah. his way of speaking that may not be very typical of world leaders, especially in conversation with others, where yeah, he can that, be quite blunt. That's true, yeah. So he's, you know, his his bluntness has, has turned off some of his allies, where, you know, in some of these... Fairly formal conversations and settings, he talks very directly. You know, give me what I need. I need it now. You know, demanding what he needs, um, asking to borrow it if if the West won't give it to him. You know, he says, I'll, uh, "Let me borrow it. I'll yeah. give it back." Give me the blueprints. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so th- this kind of this kind of language has caused some tensions with his Western allies. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know. I understand where he's coming from. He's he's uh, under a lot of pressure, and and there's no time uh, for politesse and diplomatic courtesy in his kind of Sounds in his like world. He also doesn't think there's much time for criticism from the press and Yeah, that I mean the the book ends on a note of concern in that regard. You know, I, I do imagine um what Ukraine will look like uh, after what I sincerely hope will be its victory in this war. Um will it to to what extent will it will it maintain its its uh, democratic institutions? Um, I, I think that's an open question. I think it'll be a fraught transition for for Zelensky and for the whole country. We're talking about Volodymyr Zelensky, his rise from TV entertainer to wartime leader. We're looking at the direction the war in Ukraine is taking, and we'll talk more about that after the break. We're talking with Simon Schuster, senior correspondent for Time. His new book about Volodymyr Zelensky is called The Showman. More with him and with you after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Simon Schuster, senior correspondent for Time, who's written a book called The Showman, Inside the Invasion That Shook the World and Made a Leader of Volodymyr Zelensky. And you, our listeners, are joining the conversation. How has Zelensky shaped how you think about or perceive the war in Ukraine? What questions do you have about the war? 
its status now, the U.S.'s support for it. You can tell us at 866-733-6786. You can post on our social channels at KQED Forum or email forum at kqed.org. Let me go to Jan in Mountain View. Jan, you're on. Yeah, I, the biggest concern I have is that uh, our politicians just keep asking for more and more funding for Ukraine. But yet here in California, you know, we have all these issues that we need to solve, housing crisis, you know, homeless problem. And the excuse here in California why we don't solve those issues is, you know, there's no funding available for that. So it's frustrating that, uh, you know, just Ukraine, you just keep allocating all these dollars. But yet we cannot solve the issues here at home. And, uh, yeah, it, it just doesn't make any sense to me. So, Jan, concerned about wishing more federal money would be directed to domestic issues, the issues that are affecting states like California as opposed to going to Ukraine. Do you want to talk a little bit about where the war is right now? It's being described, and you described it yourself, as being at a stalemate. I don't know if Zelensky would describe it that way. No, he hasn't quite yet, but th- and that's not my assessment. That's the assessment that was uh, published a few months ago by Ukraine's top military commander. Yes, and so there are a lot of tensions between Ukraine's top military commander and Zelensky about this, and there has been talk that Zeluzhny General Zeluzhny could be sacked. What are you hearing on that front? Well, one of the key relationships that the book chronicles from from beginning to the present day for over the years is between Zelensky and uh, General Valery Zaluzhny, the top military commander. Um, and, and you sort of see in the book how they go from, from a place of mutual respect and admiration to increasingly kind of clashing behind the scenes. Um, those uh, tensions have begun to bubble up have begun to bubble up. We, we saw them, I think, most prominently over this question of the stalemate. So the general came out publicly and said, we have a, we have what appears to be a stalemate on the front lines. Zelensky wasn't quite prepared for that uh, statement to come from the military commanders. And, and his administration pushed back quite forcefully, you know, at least in saying that we should have harmonized our messaging <laughs> before you came out with a statement like that, because it, it put Zelensky in quite a difficult spot diplomatically. Because if your own general is declaring a stalemate, that sends a signal to the Western allies like, hey, why are we going to continue sending weapons uh, in, into a stalemate? What, what, is the, what is the end game here? I think that led to some of the difficult conversations that Zelensky then needed to have on Capitol Hill and with President Biden and other Western leaders to explain to them, no, we have a plan. There is a strategy. We're moving toward our victory and we need your help. So, yeah, those, those tensions between um, him and the general are still uh, very real. Um, just today, you know, there were again a series of reports that the general might be sacked. They are unconfirmed reports. Um, they're they're coming from kind of anonymous sources in Ukrainian media and some members of parliament. But th- that kind of thing is is constantly um, uh, in discussion in in the political arena in, in Kiev. Um, Zelensky's advisors certainly recognize just how destabilizing it would be yes. to remove your top military commander in the middle of a war. So there's a lot of figuring that out. What is the best thing to do in yes. the face of these kinds of differences? The other thing I wonder if you could talk about a little bit are the stakes uh, of this war. The New York Times has a story today about fear among NATO countries that Putin will not stop at Ukraine. Can you just talk a little bit about how much that is truly a real 
fear and calculation and how pivotal this war effort is? Oh, it's, it's absolutely real. I mean, just listen to what the Russians say. <laughs> I mean, my, I, I unfortunately have been banned from entering Russia because of my reporting since 2015. So my, my sources in Russia are, are not as fresh as I would like them to be. But I listen very carefully to what Putin says, and I listen very carefully to Russian propaganda. And they are trying to prepare their people for a kind of forever war against the West, not against Ukraine, against America, against America's allies, against the NATO alliance. They talk constantly about uh, we might need to use nuclear weapons and so on. You know, this this is this is bluster. Um, but but this is, you know, the, the rhetoric that you hear in Russian society more and more. And it is very scary. I mean, the uh, senior uh, uh, Russian officials, to say nothing of pundits on Kremlin propaganda channels, talk all the time about continuing after Ukraine to attack Poland, to attack the Baltic states. These are NATO allies of the United States that the United States is treaty bound to defend. So when, uh, you know, the most recent caller said, and I, and I sympathize, you know, with, with the need to, to uh, allocate money differently to domestic priorities, the question of defending Ukraine is is really uh, quite central uh, to de- defending American interests in Europe and preventing uh, American soldiers from needing to go abroad to to defend uh, U.S. U.S. NATO allies. Um, so, uh, yeah, these are all very serious risks. Listen to what the Russians say. Let me go to Joe in San Jose. Joe, you're on. Hi. Um, yeah, I just want to follow up with what uh, the, the author just said. I mean, Ukrainians are basically fighting uh, a war that we could easily be drawn into and cost us so many, so many dead people. And the other thing is that each day that goes by that we dilly-dally trying to get them the resources they need, Ukrainians are being terrorized and murdered, maimed and raped by these Russian invaders. And I wish that people had a sense of urgency that they're... This is this is essentially a proxy war that the Ukrainians are fighting for us, and they're doing it uh, at a huge internal cost. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you, Joe. Uh, this listener writes, the U.S. Congress is incredibly dysfunctional. Why aren't the EU and Eastern European countries that are so vulnerable stepping up more to give more military aid? Do you have some thoughts on that, Simon? Yeah, I, th- I think the the war feels closer to them. It's, it's more of an immediate threat. Um, you know, it's it's been an interesting evolution with some of the relationships that I that I followed while reporting. Um, uh, initially, the some of the European leaders, I'm, I'm thinking in particular of German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, maybe would have preferred to uh, stay on the sidelines and maintain their relationship with with Russia. But over these last two years or so, they've recognized that. Those days are over. There is no going back to business as usual with the Russians, that this is really an existential threat to Europe that needs to be stopped as soon as possible before it expands. That that has dawned on the Europeans gradually at, at different paces, depending on the country you look at, depending on the historical context in the different European countries. Um, but by now, I think uh, Europeans broadly recognize that. So, so there's there's um, there's a lot. There's also a lot of war fatigue. There's also some of the same opinions of, hey, we have our own issues to deal with domestically. We don't have the resources to to fund this war. But among the leadership, certainly among the military leadership in, in Europe, they see that the Russians are not going to stop if if they are not stopped in Ukraine. How is Zelensky's government approaching the possibility of a second Trump? presidency. 
Yeah, I, I think uh, quite clear-eyed. Um, you know, I, I talk a lot in the book about uh, Zelensky's relationship with Donald Trump going back to 2019, <laughs> right? Uh, some of your listeners will certainly remember that the first impeachment of Donald Trump resulted from uh, Trump's efforts to extort political favors from, from Zelensky. So I, I describe that, that scandal from the perspective of Zelensky and his team. I reported on that scandal from Kiev. Yes. Uh, and, you know, he knows who Trump is. He didn't at that time. He was yes. quite quite doe-eyed and naive, I think. And very and, and dejected by that whole experience. Yes. <laughs> it, it was a really nasty lesson in the ugliness of international affairs and the flimsiness of some alliances that, that Ukraine, th- that Zelensky thought he could count on. By now, he's very uh, cold-eyed and clear-eyed. You know, he, he knows that he will have to work with any uh, president that the, the American public elects. Um, but he's, you know, p- preparing means to continue fighting as, as long as necessary, as long as he feels is necessary. I, I mentioned the domestic weapons production, huge priority for him right now. But I, I think just broadly what I would say is I think it's naive for Donald Trump to suggest that he could take office and, as he puts it, end the war in 24 hours. Zelensky is not a guy who is easy to push around. He's very stubborn. He's very clever. And I think he will do everything in his power to continue fighting as long as he feels is necessary and, and not to be pushed into some kind of negotiation uh, with the Russians that he doesn't want to participate in. This listener tweets, why did Zelensky cancel elections and shut down media channels? I don't know if cancel is the right word, but Ukraine is under martial law. Maybe he postponed them essentially. But that is a tremendous amount of power for a president to hold. And you talked about your concerns about his ability to transition to democracy, right? Mm -hmm. That uh, when you've held that kind of absolute power, democracy, which comes with parliament and decentralized power and freedom of the press and freedom to criticize Mm -hmm. and so on. What, after studying him so closely, have you reached some conclusion, or at least you're on one side of this more than the other, meaning that do you think that he will give in to autocratic tendencies? Or do you see or have observed or found evidence that he may not? No, I I, I generally believe him uh, that, you know, as he promises that I, I've talked to him at length about this. So he says, look, we are at war. At war, martial law is imposed around the country. Read the text of martial law. Under martial law, the supreme commander in chief, in this case, President Zelensky, has extraordinary powers to rule by decree because that's what has to happen at wartime. You need consolidation around the leadership. Uh, so he makes use of those extraordinary powers handed to him, including by consolidating media resources and basically, you know, using them to put out uh, wartime propaganda for, for his own for his own population. Um, and, you know, he's very adamant that he will continue using those levers and mechanisms as, as long as necessary to fight the war. But he does say, look, after our victory, we will lift martial law and we will go back to democracy as normal. I think that there isn't enough reason to, to, to say that, you know, he's being disingenuous when he says that. That Generally, I, I do believe that is his intention. I just worry that, uh, you know, historical precedent makes me concerned because uh, power, especially that kind of power to rule by decree, is difficult to part with. It's difficult to go back to a situation where, okay, guys, you can go back to criticizing me day and night on, you know, your private television channels and and in the halls of parliament and so on. Just as he did of 
the previous administrations himself. Zelensky as an actor in political yes, satires. Yes, yeah, you can go back to satirizing me <laughs> and so on. So that that's always a fraud transition. That's psychologically, it's difficult for for any person to 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 uh, part with with that kind of absolute power once once they've tasted it. We're talking with Simon Schuster, and you're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. How committed is he to fighting corruption? And I know this is a huge thing. It's endemic to post-war um, or to post-Soviet Ukraine and other nations. But it is something that the U.S. cares a lot about with all the military aid and oh, yeah. the money going there. Yeah, and, and for good reason. You know, the, the, the American public, the, the American leadership has responsibility to the U.S. public to be able to demonstrate that the money we're sending over there is, is being... Um, uh, adequately accounted for and, and not disappearing into any kind of corrupt schemes. Um, President Zelensky is under enormous pressure from his American partners and European partners to deliver uh, reforms and, and anti-corruption measures, and they're doing that, um, I think, to many American officials too slowly. Um, I talked at length with President Zelensky about that question. Um, to summarize, his position is, look, that's, that's, uh, that's another war we have to fight, and the Americans are basically asking me to fight to, to begin a new war, a war on a different front, the war against corruption. Uh, it's important. He's committed to it. One of his key promises going into politics and entering the presidency in his inaugural speech, for example, was to combat corruption. This is very uh, deeply felt in him. But what he points out is, uh, you know, the fight against corruption can be very destabilizing for the elites at a time when they're facing an existential threat from a foreign invader. They need to stay united. Um, and, you know, I don't want to get too much into the details of specific corruption scandals, but, but there's generally been a, been a tendency um, with, with Zelensky to give his uh, members of his circle, uh, members of his government, a chance to deal with corruption issues quietly, not to start firing people and arresting people left and right, because that erodes the unity of his team. Um, and and he, he wants them to stay united and to stay single-mindedly focused on winning the main war that they're facing. But the Americans insist that, that he fights uh, the war against corruption simultaneously. That somewhat frustrates him, but he's doing it. Just in the last days, we saw another you know a massive round of, of arrests um, inside Ukraine where the security services uh, un uncovered some uh, uh, schemes related to military procurement in mm. the defense ministry. And uh, so so they're trying to deal with it as actively as they can. But it, it is a second war, a second front. Mm. Let me go to Monica in Berkeley. Monica, you're on. Hi. Um, I wanted to ask the author to address the provision of assistance and especially the um, without engaging in the false dichotomy of giving assistance to Ukraine versus addressing our problems here at home when the U.S. is saving me by getting rid of stockpiled armaments and saving ourselves the warehousing costs. Um, I would like to ask the author specifically, um, given his close observation of President Zelensky's political agency, as he called it, what can U.S. citizens learn from Zelensky about political agency and both arguing successfully for change within our structures and also for changing the sense of mm. what's possible. Monica, Thank thanks. you very much. Very interesting question. Thank you. Um, I could take that from different directions. I, I'd, I'd say this. Uh, one of the things, uh, a very important thing that Ukraine has won over the course of, of this invasion in the last two years is 
a, a sense of, of agency and respect on the international stage. No one would question now that Zelensky has a seat at the table, that his voice counts for something. And one of the things that frustrated him enormously when he just took office, as he put it to me in one of our earlier interviews in 2019, uh, is that he felt like Ukraine was, was a, a pawn on the chessboard of great empires, the U.S., Russia, China, and it was always being pushed around. Um, and now, given to a large extent the force of his leadership and, and the success of, of the Ukrainian military in fending off this invasion, Ukraine has attained a, a level of agency and, and decision-making power on the world stage. I don't know what lessons can be drawn for the U.S. public from that, but uh, I guess broadly, don't be pushed around. <laughs> The Zisner writes, when the Soviet Union broke up, Ukraine had nuclear arms. We persuaded them to give them up with promises that we would come to Ukraine's defense should it ever come under attack. Now that Ukraine is under attack, we must honor our commitment. We owe Ukraine that much. Matthew writes, I saw a few clips of Zelensky's sitcoms in which he played the president. Are there any points of continuity between his on-screen and political personas? And does he use any of his comedy tropes now to break the tension and humanize himself as a leader? We just have a minute, Simon. But. Yeah, very good question. I, I'd, I'd say um, the uh, probably not the most important victim of this war, but one of them has has been Zelensky's sense of humor. He doesn't make a lot of time these days for jokes and banter. It's it's all business all the time, and he's very focused, tough, um, steely. Uh, so uh, he's he's not the funny guy that he was uh, early on in, in taking taking uh, taking power. He's changed completely. Yes, in in that sense he has, and and you know that's not only my assessment, but the assessment of many people who work with him. Indeed, his wife talks about that that he's he doesn't smile as much. Well, Simon Schuster, thanks so much for giving us this insight. I really appreciate Thank it. Thank you. Simon Schuster's new book is The Showman, Inside the Invasion That Shook the World and Made a Leader of Volodymyr Zelensky. There's so much for us to keep monitoring as this goes forward. Schuster is a senior correspondent for Time magazine. My thanks also to Susie Britton for producing today's segment. And as always, for our listeners for sharing their perspectives and their questions. You have been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Hey, John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it. We need a better conversation about the latest biggest election of our lives. On Pod Save America, me and my co-host cut through the noise to help you figure out what matters and how you can help. Every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, Pod Save America is breaking down the political news that makes us laugh, cry, and snap our laptops in half. Expensive year for laptops. Make sure to check out new episodes of Pod Save America on your favorite podcast platform or our YouTube channel now.